A very good morning to all of you, and uh, thank you for being here, and uh, congratulations for being here on the right time, and we'll make a little covenant not to look too smug if anyone nips in at five to ten. A man sat in my study, and he was sobbing, and the odd word escaped his mouth, but his whole face told the real story through his unstoppable waterfall of tears. There were hot tears of anger because he'd been caught, and there were cold tears of fear. Might he go to prison? Might he lose his family? There were bitter tears of wounded pride. He had a good standing in the community. And in amongst those hot and cold and bitter tears were the first sorry tears. Tears of sorrow for what he'd done to someone. Now, we couldn't have caught and labeled individual tears as they poured down his face. We couldn't have said, oh, this one's humiliation. That one's anger. This one's fear. That one's self-pity. Tears are tears are tears, but they tell a deeper story. Who knows, maybe there were even some crocodile tears thrown in for the vicar. Now this morning I want to ask first what's new and distinct in Lamentations 5, and then in a sense stand back a bit and look at the whole thing. Um, just big, big thanks to Brian and to Jack who've masterminded at the readings that we've had each week. And uh, this week, you'll have noticed immediately uh, that the reading was different. Uh, the, chapter 5 keeps the 22-verse uh, structure that uh, the other chapters have had, but it ditches uh, the, uh, what in, uh, the scholars call the acrostic uh, structure, where each verse begins with uh, a succeeding uh, letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And now it's more free-flowing. It's, it's less formal. All 22 verses of chapter 5 are prayer now. Prayer addressed directly to God. If you remember back to chapter 1, chapter 1 was essentially descriptive, saying what was going on. This is what Jerusalem is feeling about the situation. But the big change, as you of course will have noticed, is that it's gone from I to we. It's changed from individual lament the community laments. If you remember back to chapter 3, verse 55, I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. But now we don't have an individual speaking. It's a community, and they are praying together. And Jewish people still use these prayers to mourn not only the destruction of Jerusalem, but also countless other episodes of murder and the pogroms and the many regimes who have tried to annihilate the Jewish people. These prayers are still community prayers. We have in this prayer, in chapter 5, the continuing story of their present suffering, but now it's a prayer and not a description. And then we have these four perplexing but powerful verses at the end. If you've got a Bible, uh, do look at it. Uh, it's uh, verse, verses 19 to 22. Um, 
Verse 19, you, Lord, reign forever. And I think I and other scholars pick up, uh, in a sense, an undertone then at that he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, the big bad guy who's done all of this, he might have a throne, but it's God and God in heaven who has the throne. Then in verse 20, the lament continues, why do you always forget us? Then verse 21, restore us, Lord. The appeal to God has changed from, at the start, hey God, over here, look at me, have you any idea what's happened, to now restore us. The final appeal in Lamentations 5 is not against Jerusalem's enemies, it's not even for the rebuilding of the city, it's not even end to their present suffering. It's a plea, and it's a plea to know God's presence and to be restored to him, by him, and for him. And then verse 22, which you sort of wish wasn't there, but it is there. We don't get a truly or fully happy ending. The last verse returns to doubt and to self-loathing, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond all measure. So how does Lamentations and the book as a whole help us to lament? Well, firstly, we see in Lamentations 5 that we are gently admonished that we should not stay isolated and alone in our grief. Many of us, of course, are isolated and alone in our grief. In the New Testament, we read, carry one another's burdens. We can't take on all of each other's burdens, but we can take on some together as a community. Part of the journey of grief is for our individual stories of grief to become entwined and for us to strengthen and refine each other as we tell God our sorrows And we tell God together the way that we long for him to act in our world. But of course, we live in a culture where we are prone to focus too much on our own individual suffering and to shut others out from that, but also to shut out the suffering of others. We feel we've got too much to take on without sharing the suffering of others. Secondly, we need to think about sin and suffering. One of the complexities of all five poems is where does the blame and responsibility for the destruction of Jerusalem lie? Is it God's punishment? Is it innocent suffering? Is it a painful lesson in politics for Jerusalem, teaching them to watch who they make deals with? It seems to me that there are at least three kinds of different sin going on in lamentation, separating them out so that we can see the cause and effect individually of each is, of course, impossible. We have, first, sins of the past. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 5, our ancestors sinned and are no more, and we bear their punishment. We know this is true. 
we know that we reap the rewards and their costly consequences of the imperfect people who've gone before us in our families, in our communities, and more globally and internationally. We, of course, inherit lots of good things from them, but we bear the punishment of the sins of those who have gone before us. That's the first kind. Second kind is sins of the present and near past. In verse 16 of chapter 5, we read, or they pray, the crown has fallen, we have sinned. The people of Jerusalem know that in their lifetime, they have ignored the warnings of the prophets and they have rebelled against God, causing division and injustice. And they know that they were warned about this and part of their sense praying and reflecting in lamentations is coming to God to say sorry for it. But there's another set of sins of the present and that is the terrifying excesses of the invading Babylonian armies. In verse 22 of chapter 1, we read, Let all their wickedness come before you. Deal with them as you have dealt with us. All of this suffering in Jerusalem has been caused by sin. But as we know, sin, like tears doesn't come in discreet, carefully packaged portions. My sin, your sin, historic sin, all band together to create one ugly soup of suffering. These leftovers of Jerusalem are descendants of generations of Israelites who've rebelled against God. This leaves a mark on their culture and their values and their attitudes, as, of course, it leaves a mark on our culture and our values and attitudes. These leftovers of Jerusalem are themselves at fault. They have rebelled. They have ignored Jeremiah's warnings. And, of course, the same is true of us. We have rebelled. We have fallen short. We have acted in ways that cause God great distress. And then you've got the top dogs, the Babylonians, the swaggering superpower of the day. They have overstretched their hand. They have brought down an entirely disproportionate and cataclysmic amount of suffering on Jerusalem. Chastise Jerusalem, says God to Babylon. Oh, thank you, says Babylon. We will grind their bones to dust. Now, this is a helpful insight that Jesus later amplifies. We are all sinners, and we are all sinned against. And it is a fool's game to precisely link present suffering with past sin. Now, there can be broad connections, of course, and they're always worth exploring at any time of suffering. So if I'm in prison for stealing then my present suffering is to do with things that I've done in past. If I break my finger when I punch my brother, again, my present pain does relate directly back to things I've done in the past. But it's always more complicated than that. 
And to see someone suffering greatly or to suffer greatly ourselves doesn't mean we conclude it is the direct and personal consequences of their or of our own failings. Nor does it stop us asking for God's forgiveness for the things that we know we've done wrong. Not so that we can escape suffering, but so that we can put things right with him. Restore us, O Lord, says Lamentations 5. Thirdly, we have been helped to understand the nature of lament. Lamentations is teaching us that lament is never casual. It's never simply saying the first thing that comes into our heads. What we have in Lamentations and in the Psalms of Lament is raw, but it has been organized and considered and refined. So in those first four chapters, uh, you know, the poet has gone to extraordinary lengths uh, using this acrostic pattern, the A to Z of grief. Lament is not supposed to be entirely rational or theologically watertight. In fact, that's unlikely, and it's increasingly unlikely when we are hurting deeply. But the end of Lamentations 5 is very telling. Its end point is the desire for restoration with God. We've moved in chapter 1 from mourning the situation. This is terrible. We've moved from that to chapter 5, where we together are telling God about the situation and we are seeking restoration with him above all things. There are so many things and people and preoccupations and aspirations that block God out of our lives. But wherever you are on your journey of suffering, being able after all the confessing and the crying and the lamenting to say wholeheartedly, restore us to yourself. That is the important place that we are aiming for in our communal journey of grief. This is a collective thing. We do it together as a community. It's never truly and entirely private. We clearly need, as we finish, to address the seeming absence of God from the whole of Lamentations. What is going on? Although it's, it's not really an absence as so much of Lamentations has God fully in view. But God doesn't appear out of the storm like he does in Job. God doesn't appear to be active or a gracious healing presence in Lamentations. And God does not lead us in Lamentations through to a happy ending, as we heard, unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. Now, from an Old Testament point of view, Lamentations is simply not the last word on the subject of the destruction of Jerusalem. But it is an important word, and it's a word all on its own. And these words are God's gift to us. They are a template for our tears that we use carefully. You can't hurry grief. And Lamentations ending in the way it does, with both restoration and doubt, helps us. From another Old Testament point of view, we have Isaiah chapters 40 to 55. These are prophetic words of 
hope and comfort and healing, they are spoken to the same group of people as we hear praying in Lamentations 5 by the same God, but by a different prophet. You have suffered, God says to his scattered people, and I will bring you home. They've prayed for restoration, and God comes and promises it to them. From a New Testament point of view, of course, Jesus chooses some of those key passages in Isaiah 40 to 55, sometimes called the servant songs, to explain both the necessity of his suffering and its redemptive value. There will be times for all of us when we are tempted to believe that God has completely forgotten, abandoned, or rejected us. But we know now, in a way that they could not know then, that this is not true. Why? Well, it's because of Jesus. Jesus, God's Son, chose to suffer humiliation and betrayal and the worst excesses of an invading army to prove beyond all doubt that God longs to restore us to himself, that God wants to redeem our suffering and to transform us lot into a movement of grace that catches and counts the tears of the suffering and the abandoned. Our loving God, who hates sin and greed and injustice, hates their devastating consequences, hates that we become broken and ruined people. And so what does he do? He wades in to our story of tears. Jesus knows what it is to weep tears of exhaustion and sorrow and humiliation. He is our man of sorrows. Jesus knows what it is to cry out to our Father in despair, appalled at human cruelty and inhumanity. Jesus is our brother in arms. Jesus knows what it is to entrust his life into God's hands in the face of those who want him dead. Jesus is our pioneer. He is our trailblazer. Christian lament becomes then, if we dare to take part in it, Christian lament becomes a spirit-inspired bringing to God of our hurts, griefs, and concerns, imploring God to act and to do something. And as importantly, Christian lament becomes bringing the hurts and the griefs and the concerns of our world and our community to God, imploring him to act, to do something. Let's pray together. Let's pause for a moment in silence. I invite you to consider in your heart and your mind two things. Firstly, your, your tears, griefs that you carry, 
the concerns and the fears that are uppermost in your heart. Consider those with God for a moment. What are your tears? And consider too the tears of our community and our world. The places where people are most abandoned and forgotten and left seemingly to believe that there is no God in heaven. Or if there is, he wants nothing to do with them. Let's consider just quietly the tears of our world. Lord God, here are our tears. And here are their tears. See them. You do see them. You are God over all. Remember Jesus. Restore us and restore them to yourself. And keep us true as we wait for heaven, the place of peace, where tears of all kinds are no more. Amen.